So hi everybody, today we're joined with Dr. Anya. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, good. We're good, thank you. Um, it's lovely that you've been able to join us. Thank you very much. Um, do you want to start off with just sort of introducing yourself and um, who you are, what you do and what your role is within the veterinary profession? Yeah, so, so literally, my name is Anja Petri. I'm originally actually from Germany and um, I just uh, came to Scotland in 2000 actually for a research project. And from there, it just evolved that I actually started working as a veterinary surgeon again, which is called a name veterinary surgeon. And I have done that, I think, for now the last 17 to 18 years. Wow, and what, what does your job as a named veterinary surgeon, what does that involve? So literally, it is, it is actually a legal requirement to employ a named veterinary surgeon in this country. So across Europe, you, you, they are called designated vets. So it's very similar to, to what you have in the UK. And that was only introduced in 2013, where the named veterinary surgeon here it has been for, there for a long time, since the first time since ASPA, the Animal Scientific Procedures Act, was actually introduced. And so literally any institution that carries out um, research using animals or actually uh, breeding animals for research uh, do require a veterinary surgeon. And that can be on a part-time and full-time basis. So I, for example, work full-time and there are two veterinary surgeons at the Institute I'm working. And we provide um, advice on welfare and health and disease for the species that are held at an institution. The important part is that actually we are independent. So literally I'm independent from the research and I should be independent from the politics. And so therefore I should be able to give independent advice uh, to the best of my ability on the welfare, to safeguard welfare and also that way to contribute to good science. Absolutely, that makes sense. Um, and so sort of, I suppose you came to Scotland to start off with research initially and then you found yourself doing what you do now. Um, how did your sort of expectations of your career when you were sort of graduating from vet school, how did they change and how did you find yourself doing what you do now? Okay, so, so literally uh, my expectation changed a lot and I was rather disappointed when I started working as a veterinary surgeon. Uh, so literally I decided with five years that I wanted to become a veterinary surgeon. I never changed my mind. There was not a significant event to say so, but I was surrounded all the time as, as a child by animals. And literally I don't think I fully understood the business side and that it's about health and disease. And so, so literally I was very determined. So literally when, um, when I went to grammar school, I actually had uh, eight years of Latin because at that time when I studied, it was still a requirement to have to gross Latinum. And I didn't actually think that I would straight away get a place. So therefore I actually applied for a position as a veterinary nurse. So that would be my stepping stone. So, but I was very lucky. So I started my job as a veterinary nurse in August and in October, I also got an offer for placement. Then it got very complicated and because I enjoyed being a veterinary nurse. So I actually uh, went to the university, registered, but asked them if I could, for example, 
do this for another six months. They granted me that on the provision that I would actually do two terms together. And that's what I did in the end. So literally when I arrived, I arrived for the second term and then I did the first and the third together and then the fourth. So, and that was literally very hard work. And after the fourth one, I was, I was pretty exhausted. And, um, and when I finished, it's something like, I think, I don't know how it is studying in the UK, but it was very compartmentalized. So literally you would maybe focus on bacteriology, you would focus on rheology. And then yes, later on the clinics came to it, but, but literally you never got the whole big full picture. And that only came when you actually went uh, into, I went uh, into private practice. And that was a bit of a shock. So the other thing is I did directly after I finished, because I, I wanted to go into the small animal practice. I wanted to specialize in the area of immunology and eye conditions. And, and it was at the time, yeah, a requirement to have a doctor. So I didn't do a PhD as such. I did a, what is called the doctor in veterinary medicine, which I actually did in Switzerland at the University of Bern. And after I finished that, I just went into small animal practice in Germany. There was a small animal clinic. And literally within three weeks, I knew I couldn't do this for the rest of my life. And I gave myself a year to, to make sure that the, I'm, I'm not wrong about what I'm thinking. But literally the business side was something I struggled with. And also some of the attitudes of the clients I struggled with. And I think mostly I struggled with because I had a very good work-life balance in Switzerland. I worked hard as a you know, when I was a doctor, doctorand, but at the same time, I still had um, people to go out with doing something. When I went into the small animal clinic, I worked with a good friend of mine, but literally that's the only thing we did, we worked. And we had no proper support. So you were thrown in into the cold water and that was it. And you just had to deal with the situation. You learn a lot, but it was quite, um, quite stressful. And, and when I compared with what I had in Switzerland to what I had suddenly now, um, I just decided that that's not what I wanted for the rest of my life. And, and then I was actually quite lost. I didn't know what I wanted, except that I had realized I was interested in welfare. And when I was in Switzerland, similar to the job I do now, there was a vet veteran surgeon employed looking after, I worked in the biology department, they had like sheep herds and goat herds. And I helped them to, to you know, with the herd management and so on, because I just enjoyed it. And so I was looking for something like this, but at the time that wasn't really available in Germany. And so I went back to the default position of going back into a research project and that is how I came to the University of Aberdeen, where I had applied for a post and, and got the post. And, um, and from there, I enjoyed the research side because I do enjoy finding solutions to problems. Um, but after a while, it was very clear that I, my heart was set being a veteran surgeon. And when the university actually offered me to do this uh, NVS post on a part-time basis, I accepted it. And when there was a full-time um, full position at another institution, which was called the Raoult Institute, I actually just went for it, got it. And literally from there, I just evolved as a name veteran surgeon, really.
Wow, uh, that's brilliant. I suppose um, it, something we're really passionate about is speaking about um, the different types of careers that are available. Because as you say, when you're studying veterinary medicine, you have to make a lot of sacrifices. So like for you, you, you had to do those few months and few terms of really intense sort of education. You moved to Switzerland and then to sort of go into the job that you'd always wanted to do. And you kind of thought, oh, I'm not sure if this is for me. That must have been quite worrying. So I think it's good that you, you sort of spoken about that and we can share that so people can realize okay if i if i do graduate and i don't like working clinic or in practice like there are other options um so what does day-to-day -day, normal day-to-day -day work look like for you now and how does that differ from clinical practice perhaps is there more flexibility like where do you what how does it differ so there are a lot of different things. One thing I have to say is uh, whatever I say about my role as an NVS doesn't mean that is how the role of the NVS is in another institution. So there's not really a standard. It, it really depends. Each uh, NVS has the core responsibilities as laid out under the Animal Scientific Procedures Act. And literally, we also have, we have our own code of conduct almost with our CVS. But in addition to that, quite often you will have other responsibilities. And uh, so I can only talk for myself. And the thing is like, so I actually work for two institutions. I'm, I'm one of two NVSs, one institute and the other one, I actually provide a consultancy service. So I do the same job again, it's just with different species. And what, what is interesting with the species, for example, is that you need to, each species, you need to know a lot, the in and outs. It's not just the health and the disease, it's also the behavior and literally how you can motivate them and important is how you can train them because quite often we are involved with uh, education and also the training of, of people so how they get the best out of an animal on a positive reward basis um, the other thing is i don't work alone there's a whole little army of named people and we literally all work together in a team we all have so mine is more an advisory role but i have a legal responsibility in relation to rehoming uh, laboratory animals which i do I have done quite a number of different species over the year, which then found a home. And uh, but for example, there's another named rule, the named uh, animal welfare and care officer. Um, these people actually have a legal responsibility in relation to the welfare. So we all work to together. There's like the, the law as it stands is quite interlinked. So it's not just one person responsible. So it, it almost forces us to work on a team. Otherwise it doesn't work. And, um, and so, so literally there's a lot of teamwork. There's a lot, if there's, for example, we are responsible for biosecurity. So we will advise on, you know, biosecurity system and depends on the species. It could be rodents or if it's in, in another facility, it could be maybe even, you know, sheep in the very distant past. I've worked with sheep and you just can, or you can create a, almost like a herd management for that species. And uh, in addition to that, then you actually help with specific research projects, depending on the research projects and what is actually done to the animals. We call it regulated procedures. What regulated procedures are carried out? Then we look how we can, if there is any suffering, just because an animal is used in research doesn't automatically mean it suffers. And but if there is suffering, my role is how I can minimize it. So with you know provide with pain relief, with 
you know, quite often tender love and care, so supportive mechanisms. And, uh, and that is what we do. We also do because, uh, again, because these research products are very defined and they are covered what we call a project license, where the costs and the benefits are discussed. So the benefits for, to the science as well as the cost to the animal. And it's also discussed what is exactly done, what potentially would be the suffering, what we call adverse effects, and there are limitations. So this is where like the NACBOS and the vets come in quite often we create like welfare assessment sheets so that we safeguard the welfare and that they literally the animal stays within the authority of what was granted uh, on that license and a lot of them and it's so that I do a lot of um, so literally there's a lot of I wouldn't say admin work but I do a lot sitting in front of a computer I mean especially now last year literally just sat in front of a computer and um, but in general otherwise you would have a lot of people interaction a lot of meetings you go into the units or wherever the animals are you you inspect them and you literally speak to the people you know that you do something similar to what a veterinary veterinary surgeon in private practice would do with regards to examination or sometimes investigation the limitations for me are really when it literally comes to i quite often cannot cure the animals or if there's because they're research animals and i need as an nvs need to um, acknowledge the purpose and so so in many circumstances we might to decide that actually euthanasia is the most humane method forward in particular if if i for example would advise on a treatment that would interfere with the research um, so that can be quite challenging for everybody involved because it's, it's ethically and morally always a bit challenging. Um, but it's a lot of, I think there's a lot of paperwork. There is paperwork, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of paperwork. But I think it is, I, I see the paperwork as communication tools. Because everything like a project license, we have study plans, we have training records, all of this are communication tools to how we actually make sure we are all on track to do the best we can. Yes, definitely. And I, I like that you kind of touched on some of the more specific parts of your role within you caring for animals, because I think, unfortunately, there's not that much kind of education with the general public about what actually happens in a lab. And I think um, there's a lot of stereotypes of how animals are treated in labs um, and kind of how vets interact with them. And the reality is actually that it is kind of an educational institution. It's a research institution. So um, there's a lot of care and there's a lot of people actually looking after these animals. Um, but as you said, there is also something that we see a lot in veterinary medicine in general, which is kind of like this ethical versus welfare versus, you know, what is the purpose of this animal? And I think sometimes people think, oh, this is just in lab animals, but that's not the case. This happens with, you know, production animals as well. They have a specific purpose and that goes into how vets care for them. Mm -hmm. So is there kind of anything that you specifically try and educate people about to kind of help them see a bit more specifically how, you know, how important the role that you have really is in, in providing kind of welfare and kind of the skills that are involved in communication and educating people in general, I guess. 
I think the education with regards to the rule is, is uh, literally, I think it's only started. I, I had with a number of like, for example, with Animal Research Nexus, we had some discussions about what, what kind of publications are out there. And they have wrote just recently two articles. And literally I've done with a, a colleague and friend of mine, Nairi Dennison, she actually, uh, we wrote two articles. One will be on the wet futures and one was actually published in practice. And it's just to, to give a bit of an overview. Um, I think people quite often do not know that there's legal requirement for vets actually being employed to look after animals. Within an institution, I think people need to understand what my role is. But but literally, I think most people, when they have worked with, with NVS, they do understand that we actually are there to support and help. And and so it's very rare that it's seen as, as, as a hindrance or, or being very negative, because in the end, nobody would benefit from that. And I think I think you need to be just careful sometimes that you stay independent. And, uh, and I think sometimes this is one of the difficult discussions because it's very easy for me to talk about what I do because I don't have to take a sign. I will not judge the signs um, and also, but I don't have to promote or, or defend it. And uh, where is this different for, for the researcher, for example, it's a much harder job for them to do than it's for me. Uh, so the internal, I think what is important is like the, the veteran surgeon, my experience is that it's actually seen as a quite senior position and and well recognized and uh, that one of the literally the NACWOs which actually it's normally held by an animal technician they sometimes I, I think deserve more respect than they always get and I think I see my role for example that I really try to educate people on that we are a team of named people there's a training officer, information officer, and we all have that role and we need to educate people that we, we all have our part to play. And literally without, if I, if I would really just rely on myself, I would not do the same excellent work than if I would have the NACWAS because they are the real experts. If you think about animals that are prey animals, they see them every day, they deal with them every day. If they just suddenly pick up the phone and say, hmm, Anya, there doesn't look right today. If I go in, I will not find anything. If I look at the mouse that is just slightly off, then it will just pretend it's fine. And it will only show and be honest when I'm gone and when, when the person is there that cares for it every day. And I think therefore it is absolutely vital and important to, to recognize the good work the technicians do as well as the knuckles and how. And that is where I think a lot of the education comes in. From a public point of view, I don't think people really are aware of that. And we have started changing that. So, so some of the universities, actually we, we have also sent technicians to schools to talk about this topic. So it's coming it's changing but it's very slow yes yeah that's, uh, it's definitely good that it's kind of developing more and more and um, my kind of well through my veterinary education we did get a lot more teaching than I think was previously done about not only the role of kind of um, vets in labs but also kind of in research in general and especially now I think we're in a time where we're getting a lot of studies about um, kind of mouse facial expressions and um, mouse behaviors, which is super interesting. And it's, it's, I think, really good to bring it to the public because sometimes these species that are kind of looked at as lab animals, they're still animals and they're actually highly intelligent. So um, I think the more we understand kind of the better that we can get the public to understand um, what roles vets and other people play in, in 
kind of their welfare and their you know daily life really I would say because like when I studied, I, I think welfare was understood is when an animal is healthy. So, so you, you did disease prevention. You didn't look so much, you know, there, there was some obvious behavior of pain, but the same amount of where you looked at behavior and welfare, you didn't actually do. I wasn't taught that as a veterinary surgeon. So I have learned so much by doing this job. I've, from each species I work with, I have learned so much and appreciate how to actually understand them and and I think it's and I think this is why I think the veterinary profession profession would be great if you would just share all this information because then we can actually help our patients whatever patient is much more and I think this the behavior patterns and literally how we do best welfare scoring I think that is something where we need to just all ship together to do the best we can but I have not had a day when I didn't learn something I mean that is what I I really like about it is it is it's, it's never boring, and uh, so and I think you know I've done this job now long enough so if I learn something new every time then I think that I think that's great I think you go home with a positive. Definitely, I think as well. But you sort of forget so much. You do five years at vet school, six years of at vet school, and so much of the education comes when you do enter the workplace like you say at vet school you get taught about disease prevention and things like that as opposed to what you do every day in your line of work um so what what sort of extra qualifications did you have to do to do the role you do now as a named veterinary surgeon um, you, you don't actually, so literally, this is, this is quite, I mean, there, there is further education available, but the requirement, at least in the UK, was that you do what we call an NVS course. And there was just an entry level. So when, like, when I started working as an NVS, I had about a year to do this course, which I think at the time was three days long. And, and it just focused on, on patterns, how you work to understand. I, for me personally, I would say because I have worked in research in the past, I mean, you know, I had a bit of an overview. I, uh, I, think, I think it helps if you understand the pressures because I mean, any, if you work in, at the university or even in, yeah, in, in private industry, there's a lot of pressure to, to publish papers, to succeed, to be, you know, to have the best paper, whatever. And there are also time constraints and financial constraints. So it does help you if you understand that side and, and see how you can embrace people to push the three hours forward. Um, I, I personally have done the certificate, which, which actually I would recommend to anybody who wants to do this kind of job, because when I did the certificate, it just gave me a very good background, a really good baseline. And, um, and I really enjoyed it. There are a lot of things I, let's say I assumed I knew, but when I then actually had to do it, and especially because you have to so many different species you look at, that it actually helped me a lot um, uh, to actually also feel more comfortable and confident in doing my job. And um, so the other thing you can do is a diploma. In the very distant past, UK had its own diploma, but you can't do that any longer. Um, or it's not offered, but you can do the, either the American or most people would do know the European diploma. 
I have not done it because I, I wanted to do it straight after the certificate and then my husband decided to change career and he had to study for three years and I don't think it would have worked very well or if he would have both studied. Uh, I'm still interested from the point of view, I think I would actually have most of the requirements actually from a point of view, you, because if you have published papers and if you have X, Y, and then you might actually be able to have worked for so many years, you might have just to sit an exam and, and that's it. So you wouldn't have to do all the hard studying anymore. But I do think, I do think it's very useful. I think what I think is very important for me, because this is something what I see in Europe, is there's a high push for having highly qualified um, veteran surgeons. So they all should have a diploma. Now, if I have a diploma, does not tell anything if I'm a good veteran surgeon or not. And I think this is quite important. I think we need to be open-minded. If people want to thrive in that direction, then I think it's good and we need to support it. But we should not disrespect or disregard people who don't want to do that. It has nothing to do about the knowledge. It has nothing to do about the skill and abilities. I think that is something, you know, I think a diploma is about how much money you can earn. So if, you, if I would apply, for example, for a different job and I have a diploma, most likely my grade would be slightly different from what I have now. But I think I think that is something we do need to, to think into context. And I wouldn't like to judge anybody who is not interested in doing one, because I have met so many really proactive, enthusiastic NVSs who do a fantastic job and they don't have one. And it would be a shame if they would be recognized for that. Definitely. I think that's something that we see a lot in the veterinary profession, that sometimes there are certain limitations um, that are purely just to do with what have you studied, what certificate have you done, how advanced are you, um, which I think sometimes does limit uh, people who are just very keen and maybe come from a different background. Um, but I think hopefully it will change a little bit and more people will have access to kind of a more varied number of careers. Um, but you mentioned previously about kind of uh, what drives you and your kind of daily life in kind of this role. Is there something that you find really, really makes you, you know, passionate about what you do every day and drives you to kind of keep going and putting in your all in this quite, I think, complex environment that you work in? Um, I, I think I'm just driven by change. I think, I think the ultimate goal would be literally that we don't have to use animals in research. Um, so that is something which I think, if you think about the three R's and people are maybe not that familiar with it, but they stand for replacement, reduction and refinement. And as a veterinary surgeon, we are always seen as the ones that do the refinement. So to help, you know, refining a procedure or making it better for the animal, having a better welfare assessment. And, but we also, if you look actually at the guidance note and our, uh, our responsibilities, we also have a responsibility to the others, uh, to us, that is not always recognized. And I'm very passionate about that. I think that is what gets me up every, every morning, making a difference. It's like, I think any animal that is used, if you, if you use an animal research, if you eat an animal, whatever, I think we owe them respect and we owe them care. And we need to do our best, whatever, you know, the pet, it doesn't matter what the purpose of that animal is. And, and I think it doesn't matter if they are really cute looking or not cute looking. I think, I think they all deserve the same, you know, yeah, care, 
attention and that is what what i would like to get across and i think i think and you can make a difference it's not like you know i will not by the time i retire have changed the world but it's very satisfying when you that is as frustrating if you're passionate about something if things don't go well then you also are deflated but it's all part of the deal but that is what gets me up it's, it's just being driven to make a difference to improve welfare and and yes and even if i can rehome one mouse or two rats i think that is better than nothing and if you educate people i think a lot is to be said about about being open about what we do speak about it talk about it and literally educate because i think more we educate people then i think more that we will also open minded in particular also replacing because we are very far behind with that and and it will take a lot of time but it will also take courage because if you have systems that use animals it's like if you would change them people would just think oh what we did in the past is wrong and i think it's not about right or wrong i think it's about how we can change it to make it better for the animals absolutely and i mean like you just said everything's always changing and every day's a, a learning day and it's about how we can make it better for the animals and for the people involved as well um what's what sort of changes and what sort of direction can you see your role going in in the future as sort of that people like seek for alternatives to using animals in research um what sort of alternatives perhaps are there and that are being looked into and how sort of feasible are these really what's the reality of animals being used in the future in research oh wow i'm not sure i can answer the question <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing is like i think you know the technology for for any kind of of biotech for 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 you know any kind of um, tissue engineering is very coming and literally you you have i think especially in the area of if you think about and i'm not a computer science person so but in the end if you think about modeling there's a lot that can be predicted and and the thing is like i think that is something where we just need to be open we might have to run it sometimes in parallel with an animal experiment but we need to explore these options and we also need to understand the limitations of an animal model i think that is very important is like to understand what the limitations are and also how the translation is you know if if you do your research in a mouse it doesn't mean it's directly translated into that into a human so we need and we need to be open about this uh, limitations and sometimes maybe we need to also ask the question i think i would like maybe more question asked do we really need to do this or is there another way of doing it but i think it's not quite often people say it's just you know there's maybe a perception that is the role of the researcher but i think it's all of our role it's my role it's any of the named people's role it's the researcher's role but it's also the public's role to question but also to be supportive and and i think that is where i think we and i think this is where where i don't know if you have heard about the concordat on openness and transparency but that is something where universities have signed up for and you if you go to the website you see much more information now about animal research and what animals have been used and that is something where where i think it goes in the right direction to be more open about it and i think you need to be open of of what has been successful 
but you also need to be open of what has not worked. And I mean, it's, it's, and I think it's quite important for veterinary surgeons, I think, because any drug a veterinary surgeon is using in private practice, most likely is based on animal experimentation. And that is something literally, which is quite important to understand. So I think it's not just about what is happening to humans. I think this was my motivation when I was finished with, uh, with my studies that I realized, well, anything I will be using, I also need to understand where actually how it was developed and where it's actually coming from. And a lot was done with animal experimentation. Definitely. I mean, yeah, those are some very wise and actually very deep words about kind of not only um, the limitation to kind of lab animal medicine, but as we've discussed in previous kind of episodes, the fact that all vets and the public um, play a role together and kind of moving towards a different kind of future. It's not just one person or a couple of people's responsibility. I think education now is very accessible through technology and the internet to everyone. So I think it's everyone's responsibility to really understand um, the cost and the sacrifice that uh, kind of we have to make to get certain things. And, you know, that's kind of up to us as humans to kind of decide what is worth doing and what isn't. So I think, yeah, this has been a fantastic discussion. I think that was a really good point to close it on because it's, um, really good kind of to summarize what we're trying to do here which is get more education out there about what vets do and all the different roles they play and not only kind of uh vet medicine but kind of society in general so um yeah it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you anya that's been that's fine <laughs> thanks so much for for joining us today and yeah i hope um everyone's listening has like learned loads because i definitely have um yeah, I'm glad about it. I mean, it's just like, I think, I think we all can do something. And if I can contribute by, you know, having a chat with you guys, I think we need to just be honest and we need to just acknowledge and, and move forward. I think that's, that's, I think, and if, if there, I don't know, any person I speak to, if I have motivated them to do the same thing, then I have done a little bit of my making a difference. Definitely. Well, yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. And yeah, we hope everyone listening has enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening again. Well, thank you.